You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld, and today my guest is my very own flesh and blood, my good buddy, and my younger brother, Alex Kornfeld. Hi, Lou. Thanks for being here, Al. Yeah, no problem. Let's talk improv. Let's talk improv. <laughs> this is this is like one of the really weird ones. Is it weird for you? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's like a warming up period usually in an interview, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm kind of like trying to feel out like the best angle of approach to kind of like get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm talking to you or if I'm talking to the lovely Megan Gray. I know her. Yeah. Or if I'm talking to the great Charles Whitcroft or, you know, Quentin Loder or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's like ridiculous to even have like a warm up period. Oh, yeah. That we're, makes sense. We're already in the middle of it. Yeah. This is just a, a friendly chat. Friendly chat. What do you want to talk about? I'll let you, you lead the conversation. Uh, okay. Um, well, one thing that I've been thinking about lately, and I've used this analogy before, but I really like it. Oh, first, before you get into this analogy, who the hell are you? Oh, I'm. Alex Kornfeld. You perform on Avalanche at Megawatt. That's right. You were also a house manager at The Magnet. That's right. All right, we're all caught up. Cool. Tell me about this analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for a long time, not right away, uh, when I started taking classes, uh, I was pretty nervous, like a lot. Uh, In fact, when I didn't get on Megawatt right away, and uh, we had our meetings with with Peter McNerney, his his note to me uh, or like something that he was thinking about was um, uh, why is Lewis so nervous hmm. uh, was his note to me. Um, and I think I gave it greater stakes than it needed. Um, the what the audition, the audition, but also the from getting, like the getting on the getting on. It seemed like the next natural step sure. after uh, after all the classes and from level four, I remember feeling distinctly in level four, like, oh, this is it. This is the big time I'm past. I'm past the middle of the classes. Hmm. Um, and I played with really good people in level four. I mean, Ashley Glicken and Tim Dufresne and Adam Pasulka were all in that class. And I just thought they were so like amazing. And I remember talking to Megan and I, I knew that they had gone through other programs and they, they'd been doing it for longer than me. And Megan's note to me was like, keep your eyes on your own yoga mat, you know, like follow your own journey. And that was good advice. Um, but I was nervous from, level four to like level six. Mm. Um, and immediately not getting on a team felt, uh, bad. I mean, I, I don't think that it feels good, but I remember I took the wake, my third level four after that. And the time not being on a team was like really helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that you have a tendency when you're going through the classes to feel like, you know, there's like a brick road from level one through level six or team performance workshop. And then megawatt seems like the next step and, um, not getting on. You're like, Oh, the road's over. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. But it's not that the road's over. It's that now you're like at tall grass and you forge your own path mm-hmm. and not getting on and being like, Oh, I'm still alive. Um, was really helpful for me. Um, and even being on megawatt, there's like a different sense of nervousness a feeling like you have to do a good job every week. Yeah. And I was talking to somebody, it might've been Tim Dufresne about the feeling of uh, like competition uh, that like, whenever you take the stage, you're competing, you're competing against yourself, like your own ideas of like what you're capable of. 
Um, and I think that's definitely true. But for me, what's been helpful is this idea. Here's the analogy. Oh, great. Um, took you long enough. Took me long enough. God damn it. You can't curse on this. Oh, I'm sorry. We're very popular among uh, uh, junior, junior high schoolers. Yeah. Um, they have it figured out. Uh, the analogy that Wouldn't I Wouldn't it like, be weird if our chief demographic for this show were seventh graders? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, go on. <laughs> that would be funny. Um, uh, that improv is kind of like a Chinese finger trap that if you feel like you're in a rut or you feel nervous or something, you you want to fight against it to get out of it, but that almost never helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of have to relax to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that I've found very useful for me. Yeah. Um, when you're on a team long enough and you can kind of take a step back and see a bit of a bigger picture and see like the highs and lows are just like smaller uh, ups and downs on like a bigger graph. Um, then you realize like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Like, I didn't have a great show. It's fine. And if you're going up first in the hour, there's this feeling of like after the second team played, I don't think anybody even remembers Remember. the show yeah. that we did. Yeah, right. I don't even remember half of the show that we did. Yeah. Well, I want to back up for a second. Mm-hmm. So what was that first, like, was there a difference for you going back to classes after having missed out on a team the first time? Like, because like, I mean, you didn't get into classes assuming that you were aiming for megawatt. Your first class was a was a, a little bit of like a lark. Yeah. Well, my, my first class was a gift from you, I think. Yes. Uh, it, was a, it, was it was a Christmas, Christmas present. Christmas present. Yeah. yeah. And um, when I started level one, you know, all of my friends at that point had like, not all of them, but like a lot of them had gotten jobs. This was after I graduated from grad school. Mm-hmm. And some of my friends had gotten jobs or they'd moved away. And... I could like feel myself retreating into myself socially. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I toyed with the idea of doing improv. It was, it was always something that like you and Megan and Charlie and Corey Grimes did. And I enjoyed coming out to see you. Like for me, for the, for a long time, improv meant coming out like once a month on a Thursday, seeing the boss, maybe doing the mixer, but probably not. I was very scared of the mixer back then mm-hmm. seeing the boss and then going to triple crown after and drinking and singing songs and then probably going back to Queens and hanging out with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of doing it scared me to death. And that's why I eventually did it because I needed to like jumpstart myself socially. Yeah. And when I finished level one, it wasn't a question of like, should I take level two? It was a question of which level two fits into my schedule. When, when did that, like how early in level one did, did you, were you like certain that you were going to do level two? Like, did you take to it like a duck in water? Um, in what respect? Like, did I like love it immediately? Yeah. Like at what point were you like, oh, I'm definitely doing another class? Uh, not long, like yeah. a few weeks, maybe. Yeah. I, I had Rick for level one, Rick Andrews, and he is so good for level one because he just puts everybody at ease very quickly. All the level one teachers here put everybody at ease and they're all very friendly. Mm-hmm. And I had a really good rapport going with everybody in my class um we all had a practice group that came out of that like immediately and it was like 10 strong out of 16 Mm -hmm. um and then that persisted for a while and uh yeah very early on i i knew that i was going to keep going yeah so whatever feelings of like 
social isolation or fear that I was feeling uh, before I started very quickly vanished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then was probably replaced with feelings of like, I need to get better at this. Right. And yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, you have a, you have a really window, a really narrow window where you go from like self-acceptance to just like beating yourself up all over again for some, yeah, for now. Yeah. It, it, something will always replace something else. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, uh, like I didn't tell anybody that I was your brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like, I, I, you know, like Stephen King's son is also a, a horror writer and he didn't tell like his, his publishers or other people, maybe he told his publishers, I don't know, but he didn't tell people that he was Stephen King's son. That's uh, uh, Stephen with a V. Stephen with a V. Yes. The, uh, the famous uh, 19th century horror writer. Um, Stephon King. Stephon King. Um, but for me, there was definitely a, of like, uh, I have to like, there's like the family name. I have to do a good job. Oh, really? Yeah. That went away. That went away. I forget who it was, but like when I first started, uh, somebody like called me little Lewis. Yeah. Um, you punch him. I punched him in the throat. <laughs> um, so yeah, not so funny now. Are you a person? I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, but I remember, like I, I remember the feeling of when I like came into my own and I had like my own style and I was like my own person. Mm. Um, and I remember doing a mixer and it was like the changeover between being somebody that like they pair you. This is back when like the boss or like another veteran team would host the mixer. Mm. And you would start off like being paired with somebody from the boss or somebody like a veteran player. And then all of a sudden I was paired with somebody from like level one and I was like, Oh, that's cool. And that's probably when I started really liking mixers. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that was so scary was sitting in the audience and like every time somebody would get called, I'd be like, Oh, am I next? Like, am I going to, so like, there was like the anxiety of that. And when I was like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to like support this person all all feelings of like anxiety went away. It mm. was just like, I'm just going to make them look as good as I possibly can. And, and, you know, hopefully we have a good scene and if we don't, well, whatever, but, uh, that's when it started getting fun for me. Yeah. It's a, it's a totally different experience improvising with, uh, with a, a brand new person. Mm-hmm. There's like a residual fear, even though, you know, like if you're playing, you know, with someone, uh, from a team and you know that they're not going to let you down, they're not going to, make it look like shit up there. There's still kind of a thing of you don't want to let them down and you get tight and nervous. But when you're playing with someone who's brand new, the you're just like entirely at their service. Yeah. And, and for me, it's always a thing of, well, the best way to make you feel comfortable is to just for me to be as simple and straightforward as possible. Mm-hmm. So you realize like how much unnecessary bullshit creeps into your improv, how, how much like posturing you bring to it. Yeah. Uh, um, how you, you get into like improv mode uh-huh. a little bit to kind of like impress your, uh, your team or impress your partners and all that when you're, when you're, when you're really doing right by this new person, your opposite, all that stuff vanishes and it's just, I'm with you as simple as possible. That's yeah. my experience anyway. It's just, I'm looking you in the eyes I'm really listening to everything you're saying. I'm reacting as simply as possible. I'm believing every word out of your mouth. And, yeah. and you help that other person to feel real up there. Yeah. 
I think that uh, like that, like wanting to feel real is like uh, that's it. Like that's what I'm after a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, w- one of the, yeah, one of the things that I'm, I don't think I'm much good at is like extreme emotions. Yeah. Um, I think that if I can't convince myself, uh, like the improviser brain, if I can't convince myself that these emotions are real or, or grounded in something real, I. I don't buy it. Right. Um, and so a lot of the time in scenes, I'm probably playing like different shades of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to break out of that. There's like a lot of different tips that you can use. Uh, but I think like with Avalanche, especially there's just, there's this feeling of like, we're like one big married couple. And that has gone a long way to making me not nervous at all. It's like, it's like, you know, old married couples who like one of them's in the shower and one of them's like sitting on the toilet at the same time. And like, they're talking to each other and like, they've already seen everything. You're at home here. Yeah. 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 Having that experience where you're, you're with a group for long enough where you feel at home with them really helps to kind of take the edge off. Mm -hmm. Um, being paired with somebody new in a mixer really helps to take the edge off. Sometimes just being that vote of confidence that you get when you're paired up with somebody new, when you no longer feel like you're the junior leaguer up there, but yeah. but you're the you, you know you're getting the vote of confidence as the experienced one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's kind of enough to sort of feel like, oh, I guess I have permission to be good now. Yeah, and in in my experience, like you know, you could be in two scenes and both scenes you could kind of just be standing there or sitting there and like not moving around a lot. Um, and in one scene, you're very aware that you're not moving around and you feel like, Oh, I should be doing more to like fill this out, mm-hmm. you know, and like make it like entertaining for the mm-hmm. people watching this. And then there's other scenes where you come out and you know that you have the permission to just sit there and be real and be like honest. Mm-hmm. And they feel, even though the scenes might look kind of the same, they feel totally different to yeah. you and the people watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that permission to just like sit back, like talk to somebody like you're waiting for the bus and just like, yeah, yeah. Um, house managing too has made the mixers for me very different because it used to be that if I went to the mixer, I would be sitting in the audience and waiting to get called. And now it's like, I'll be there, I'll be doing whatever out front and then Peter or Eleanor, Peter Appleby or Eleanor Lewis who hosts the Thursday mixer will come out point to me. And at that point I've like already like almost forgotten. They're like, Oh yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I signed up for the mixer. I'll go in, I'll do a scene and I'll come back out. So yeah. it's like, it's very different. And I kind of like that. I, I like this stark, um, like being turned around, thrown into a scene and then being turned around and come back. I, you know, once or twice I've been like a teacher has been like running late and uh, like I've been like working in the office doing something and I'll be asked like, oh, can you go teach that class really quick? Hmm. And so you run in and you teach half an hour or an hour of somebody else's class until they arrive. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very similar experience of you don't have the whole day to worry about how it's going to go mm-hmm. and worry about how you're going to do. Yeah. You're just kind of like plucked out of the middle of doing something else and thrown into the situation and just realize like, Oh, I have all of these competent skills. Mm-hmm. 
I can read this room. I can I can pay attention to what you're doing. Yeah. And having not had that extra burden of pressure on yourself, you just kind of instantly like get into it. You do your job. You do it well. Yeah. It's sort of a similar thing. You're sitting in that audience waiting for your name to be called. And there's that every time your name's not called, there's that momentary relief followed by that next even stronger buildup of yeah. uh, counts that much more for the next time. Yeah. We, it, it, like that's the exact same thing you confront every time you're improvising. It's that like that mental game that you're playing with yourself. You're mm-hmm. confronting those, that sense of um, importance, that sense of expectation that you put on your own shoulders. Yeah. I, around the time of my second audition, I read, I don't think I read all of it, um, but I read a good part of uh, the inner game of tennis, which Mm -hmm. I I think you read. Mm -hmm. And I found that like, you know, sometimes you you, like read a book at like just the right time. Like for me, I read that at just the right time. Uh, It, for people who haven't read it, it like, splits the self into the um into like self one and self two self two is the doer and self one is the judger and uh you're not gonna make the doer do a better job by making them feel bad all the time Mm -hmm. and judging them kind of reminds me of something that rick andrew said in, in level one of like you can use intimidation or fear or like threats to make some jobs go faster but you can't you can't get somebody to write like a better poem by by like whipping them mm-hmm. um and yeah i don't know i i read that book and it like really put me at ease it just like i don't know how much that is like the placebo effect but i feel like i quieted self one's voice a little bit sometimes all it takes is being given permission so mm-hmm. sometimes you just need to hear the right phrase to like let yourself off the hook mm-hmm. and and kind of like uh, uh, relax into your own natural capabilities. Yeah. So I want to go back. So, so, so now at this point you're committed to level two mm-hmm. at what, at what point did like megawatt start to seem like a destination for you? Um, I don't know. Probably not even really until like level f- five or six, mm-hmm. like what, once you get into the conservatory, um, you know, when you are like level one or level two and you're watching Megawatt, um, there's this feeling of like after the show, like, oh my God, that was incredible. Mm. And like, because it was so good. And also because at that time you're probably judging yourself pretty hard and you're telling yourself that you're not good enough or you like, you have to do better. The idea of Megawatt seems so far away that you don't really even entertain the idea that you'll get on it. Mm. Uh, at least for me, um, that, that was my case. And then, yeah, like around level five, I was like, oh, well, like this seems to be the progression. Um, and then when did it become like, I need to be on Megawatt? Auditions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I they fuck, I they fuck with you. Yeah, they do. I think that, you know, all your friends that you've traveled up with are doing it. And there's this feeling of like, I want to keep on going with my friends and I want to, I want to convince myself that I'm good enough, but it's almost like you get caught up in like expecting that you should want to do megawatt. Mm. Um, And so I think that like not getting on the first thought is like, Oh man, that sucks. And then right after that was like, okay. Cause then you kind of let go 
of those feelings of like, oh, I, I needed to do this. How long did that disappointment last? Not too long. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say it like again and again, uh, not getting on right away was one of the best things that ever could happen to me. When did you know, when did you know that? Um, a few months, like I was taking the wake, um, and there was a big difference to me between taking a class like outside of the program, like my level fours before that, um, were like steps. I mean, I, I steps to get to level five. steps to get to level five, yeah. but like, I, I also did enjoy them. And then all of a sudden taking a level four just to take it felt totally different. And I was making moves that I like wouldn't have made before. Like there was a lot of inhibition in my moves. Like, I think you, I forget what podcast you said this in, maybe the one with Peter. Um, but there's like a fear of making the wrong choice. So people tend to gravitate towards the neutral. Mm. And I, that's definitely true. Um, and I, I will make, I will tend to rely on like my improv voice a lot or like I used to probably still do um, instead of making like bold choices. And that's also a phrase that can kind of fuck with you, like make bold choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hate that phrase. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I hate it too. I hate a lot of phrases that like uh, uh, try to sum up, you know, the answers to your problems yeah. in like a phrase. Yeah. Um, but I remember it was in the wake after not getting on Megawatt the first time that I started making moves that like tickled me. Mm-hmm. And I think once I started to have fun with myself, it started to feel different. Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the things that I did in a scene in class was I just had a quiver of arrows that I had to reach behind my back to pull out an arrow. And I, I thought that was fun. Yeah. And so I would try to, I would go out of my way to like make moves like that. Yeah. Um, and then it, it just felt like all the ice kind of, kind of melted. See, I, that's why I don't like make bold choices because it, it, to me on a, on just like a very basic level, I interpret that as, so I need to do something different from what I would do because mm-hmm. I, my baseline is boring. So do something bold. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work for me. It just makes me feel like inadequate. Yeah. But I, I much prefer like um, r- relax the crack in your ass a little bit. Mm-hmm. Loosen up and feel okay to do the things that are going to put a smile on your face. Yeah. If you want to have a quiver full of arrows, then, then, then do that. And some people might see that as a bold choice, but I would see that as a little bit more of like, oh, invite your own outside of improv fuck around energy in, mm-hmm. into your improv. Yeah. The way you fuck around when you're hanging out with someone that you have total trust in and you don't care about their opinion of you at all, just like loosen up and bring a little of that to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, this is something that has like been driven home for me by playing with avalanche is you tend to just want to fuck with each other. Pardon my language. You know what? I uh, I cursed myself, so I uh, guess uh, the seventh graders just gonna have to live with it. Seventh graders be damned. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's this like feeling of like wanting to make the others break a little bit, mm-hmm. or just like have fun with each other. Mm-hmm. Um. That is very. Uh, I don't know the word is. Eh, it's fun. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's just call it fun. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you get to megawatt. Um, 
how were your expectations of being on Megawatt? How did they match up against the reality of being on the show? Uh, it sucked. Yeah. Like, like immediately. Um, I mean, it, it didn't suck like a lot. Uh, I mean, like the, I think that when you get on Megawatt, you want to prove to everybody that you deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like some of your friends didn't get on and you like, they were like watching you too. Like your friends do a great job of being very supportive, uh, when you first get on and like a, a lot of people come out to see those shows and you then suddenly become hyper aware of people like secretly judging you and yeah. you start to imagine the gossip they're yeah. saying about you at the bar. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm judging me and I project my own judgments of me onto sure. other people. Sure. I, I mean, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I, I felt like I like needed to be funny. So I immediately, like the first thing I felt like I reverted a lot. Um, and then because also my team, I'd played with some of them individually, but like coming together, I think everybody felt like, Oh, this is kind of like a weird group of people coming together. Um, and we were doing a different form than we'd done. We, we started off doing a slacker, um, which I had only done in the audition, my second audition. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to, meeting everybody as uh, teammates we were also grasping with a form that was like new for us mm. and so it felt kind of like we were treading water um is that the phrase yeah okay yeah i wasn't sure uh and then we switched to the herald about three months later and it, it felt like oh this is something that we've all done and we could like connect with each other because we were not worrying so much about the form um and then it just like started to like piece together yeah um but yeah, like right after getting on, I felt nervous again. And then a few months into it, I started to like relax. Well, well just it was just time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just time. Time and like believing, like n- knowing that you're good enough. Yeah. Uh, like that's like a pesky voice uh, that like doubt. Um, but just like n- knowing that you're good enough and just going back to surprising yourself and having fun. Yeah. So now how, you've been a Megawatt for how long? Uh, almost a year and a half. Yeah. How is it for you now? I love it. Yeah. I don't know how much of it I love like being with Avalanche. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something very nice about being on a team that's been around for a little bit. Um, I was very lucky to get on this team. Like we all like love each other and we all uh, have each other's backs and we all know that. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much of like loving megawatt is megawatt itself or just just the team hmm. a bit of both it's got to be yeah um but uh and we've had a couple players leave and a couple players come in and i know you know we had our like reservations of like oh man it's gonna be different now uh now that we're like losing this person and losing that person um but my experience with both people coming on is like after a little bit, it felt like they were there from the beginning because yeah. you like just absorb them. Yeah. Um, and we've, yeah, it's been, it's been great. Let's talk coaching class. Okay. So you're doing coaching class now. I'm doing the coaching class. Um, uh, what were your expectations going into it and what are, what's the reality you're facing now? Uh, I think my reality is what my expectations were. It's, like you go in, you, you talk, um, about like, 
uh, different things that come up when you're coaching and like different strategies to have. Um, and then there's two hours where the students come in and you coach them. Um, it's a little stressful. Mm. Uh, I've never coached before. Um, I know that like some of the people in the class have coached before and they're like, they're doing this class cause, um, still have it under their belt. And so that they can coach the circuit and stuff, but I've, I've never coached before. So do you want to coach? I do. Okay. Yeah. I, I've tutored on and off for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Non, non-improv, non-improv. You've tutored like math, math and science. Yeah. Like math and science. Yeah. And, uh, I like, I know that the best way to understand something is to, uh, hear yourself explaining it to, to somebody else. Hmm. Um, and I'll talk to anybody about improv, uh, ad nauseum and hear myself say things. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that, that is something that I really like about it. And so I, I wanted to take the class, uh, because I want to like get better in that way. Mm-hmm. I want to hear myself say things, I guess. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the class it, it's, it's stressful. Uh, not like terrible, but, uh, you know, you coach, you coach these students after like watching their set. And, uh, part of me is like, Oh, am I telling them the right thing? Am I going to put them down like a path of terrible, you know, things because I've said the wrong thing to them. And I, I don't think so. I think that like you, you do it long enough and you have like an eye for what, what to talk about. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I am looking forward to coach. How long did, uh, was it before you started coaching after you got in? Um, not too long. Okay. Um, I don't even remember. I started coaching a, um, a college practice group before I did Armando's coaching class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a little experience with them, a group called Right This Second. Mm-hmm. Um, at Wagner College, actually. Oh, fun. Yeah, it was great. Staten uh, Island. On Staten Island. It was great. Um, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. But, like, I, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be coaching. Mm-hmm. How long, like, how long before you were teaching here? When you started teaching here, were you teaching level one? Like, is that no, how it No, no, I, I started at level two. Okay. Yeah. Um, I took over when Gene Villapique was leaving. Oh. So I was trained as Gene's replacement. Oh, uh, okay. So originally it was Gene Villapique and Rachel Hamilton were the two level two teachers. Okay. It would be... Um, both great? Both great. I forget who taught level one. I think level one may have been Armando or... or um, Wasn't Mark Grenier here? No. Not at that point. It may have been Armando or Abby Shear. Or okay. Maybe even Ed. Ed was my level one teacher. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine such a thing? Oh, man. He was good. <laughs> <laughs> But just like not the person you would have in mind for a level one teacher. Yeah. It will, Ed, Ed likes to like get in your head like uh, uh, like the movie like Manhunter. He likes to get in your head and, and like experience what you're experiencing and like yeah. figure out how to like make you swallow your own tongue by telling you exactly the right thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had Ed's. Um, I forget what the name of the class was it's called. The master class. It wasn't called the master class. Um, I was like gut speed and authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gut speed and authenticity. Yeah, I took that. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. With you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he's intense. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't remember when that was, but uh, yeah, I took over for mm-hmm. for Gene. So I did level twos for a long time. What was that like? Did you feel 
was starting to teach after never having taught before, uh, like similar feeling to being on a, like being on megawatt after not having been on a team. Did you feel like you deserved it? Uh, yeah, I wasn't humble about it. Okay. Um, I wasn't like, I don't think I was like a jerk about it, but I, I kind of had a sense that I would make a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always felt pretty confident about, uh, about my ability with improv to like, know what I thought was true mm-hmm. and to be able to like articulate that and break it down for people. Yeah. Though the first, like the first class I taught was with Armando and that was very nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. And then the very first class after that was basically me imitating Armando. And that yeah. was also very nerve wracking. Yeah. It was the second class I taught by myself that I started to like, let go of Armando's approach. Yeah. And, you like find your own voice a little bit. Yeah. Just be like direct and, and, and kind of like say it as I saw it. Yeah. And make it my own that I started to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so much of it, you know, to to me is about um, really just watching people play and honestly assessing to yourself when do I believe this and when do I not mm-hmm. believe it, and and try to help them back to the thing that I believe they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I get what you mean about uh, like that class with Armando being a little stressful too. Yeah. Uh, in the coaching class, the structure of it is like two coaches. So they'll do a monologue deconstruction, the, the students, and then two coaches will like take turns alternating, giving notes. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I'll give notes, you'll give notes. And then like Armando will come up to like give his notes. And then I'm like, Oh man, did I forget to yeah. tell them this, the like main thing that yeah. I should have told them? Yeah. I don't know. I think also it's like everybody kind of looks at a scene like a little bit different and you have different sure. things. Yeah, totally. Um, and uh, that, that's the, that also took me a long time to to like learn was like there's no objective. No, there's no objective uh, uh, right thing to have done in that scene. The, you, all, all you can do is kind of trust your sense of authenticity mm-hmm. and, and match it as best as you can to like the performer's sense of authenticity. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. it. it, it like it, it, it and and here's the mistake you make a lot as a coach or a teacher is like you see the possibilities of where a scene could go and mm-hmm. then you become attached to those possibilities yeah so you start to tell them like oh but like you could have done this yes. uh because that's that you, you were already writing the rest of the scene in your head and yes that, yeah and that's a big mistake yeah what what you really want to do is watch the scene that they're doing you take mental note of the possibilities mm-hmm. but you watch the scene that they're doing and you pay close attention to what they did that either put a smile on their face or what they did that felt authentic or, Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. And then when they get off track, you guide them back to that. So, so sometimes coaches, when you get off track, will stop you and will try to make you do what they would do in that situation. I think that's a big mistake. I've had coaches who do that. Me too. Yeah. And, And, and you always kind of like begrudgingly do what they ask you to do, but you never really learn the lesson. No. Much better to, to guide people back to their own, initial choices yeah and 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 show how much more there is left to be done so so like a lot of coaching it, it, it's partly just about reinforcing a sense of confidence in a person's own choices and abilities because mm-hmm. a lot of times with like newer improvisers you'll see people do awesome things and then just not recognize that they did it because they're too they're on the lookout for the bigger, better thing, or Mm -hmm. they're on the lookout for like what the teacher or the coach wants them to do. Yeah. Instead of really kind of like acknowledging and honoring 
what their gut just made them do. I think that's a big thing. That's uh, it's definitely a note that I've gotten um, of your, you're like talking through the scene on your way to like when the scene starts, yeah. not realizing that like this is the scene. Yeah, right. Like what you're saying right now is the scene. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I like I like the exercise of uh, of like somebody, your scene partner says something and then you, you like take a few words from what they said and you kind of like repeat that and like you add a little bit and like you're just like building it one brick at a time. How does that go? I don't think I know that. Um, I think there's a few different ways of doing it, but the way that I've done it is your scene partner says like, oh man, like it's such a nice day out. The sun is out. And you're like, the sun is out and the rain finally, it's like a kind of basic uh, 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 yes ending mm-hmm. exercise. But the main focus of it is you can only respond by including some of like, you're focusing on the last thing that they said. Mm-hmm. So you're paying attention and you're not like rushing to get to the next thing. Um, yeah. What are some other exercises that are speaking to you these days or like, um, or like ones that have like stayed with you? I know you've talked a lot about some of Peter's stuff in his classes, the like dual initiations. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, I had Peter for level three. I like, I know that a lot of people who go through here have you for level three. I've never had you for level three. That's true. I big sipped your level two, mm-hmm. which was a, a great time. Um, some of my favorite exercises. Um, I really like, maybe this is in my head because we did this in our last uh, rehearsal. Um, somebody says a crazy thing as they're, as they're opening to the scene and you treat it like it's totally normal. So like we had a scene, it was me, me and Anthony Sneed. Um, and I, I was reading a newspaper and I said, uh, Oh, I, I wrote a check to the vampire for $354. And it's like very like blase reading the paper um, and, and Anthony goes, Oh, did the first check bounce? And I'm like, yeah, so I think I paid too much on the electrical, like that kind of thing. And then it's like, Oh, the vampire is just a contractor on our house and he happens to be a vampire. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. I love treating crazy stuff like it's normal. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that has been said about me by one of our coaches, uh, was that one thing that I do well is I, play the every man in a world where he doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, a lot of the time have an inclination to normalizing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people will try to point out the, the, the absurdity of something. Um, I find that it's easier or more fun to just go along with it and build from there. Yeah. Yeah. There's an art to being a good, um, uh, uh, straight man to a scene mm-hmm. because sometimes people will normalize the scene in such a way where they like ground it to the point where they banish the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. And you got to like ground it with a light touch. Yeah. And it's really more, you got to like have the right feel for it than anything else. It's not just about being the voice of reason, but it's about being a voice of reason. That's like a surrogate for the audience to also be like, boy, this is crazy but you're still just kind of inviting permission for more and more of it to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it, like it's like seeing a regular person roll with the craziness rather than seeing a regular person demand an explanation for the craziness. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, sometimes you can ground something to the point where like you kill it. Like you, you ground something to the point where like it's like not even worth talking about anymore. Yeah. And then it's just two people out on a stage 
that thing is now dead yeah. and you're talking about the next thing because you've made it so normal that it's like not even worth keeping up with. Yeah. Um, I think you said something once about like plate spinning, you know, you, you go back and forth, like the, the, the juxtaposition of, of like the weird thing and like the rest of your daily life. And then going back to like almost remind people that like, Oh yeah, this is, this is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that has been a little bit difficult for me, but is very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I keep coming back to like level one stuff, level one exercises and level one, like things that I learned in like level one, like level two. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of fun in level one and level two. Yeah. And bringing that stuff into a scene even now is like really enjoyable. Like just not focusing on not getting in my own way with, with like, expectations and stuff just like focusing on the basics of scene work there's a beginner's mind to level one and level two that you you kind of pollute along the way you 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 develop like an experienced person's mind and Mm -hmm. uh you know to quote suzuki you know in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities but in the experienced person's mind there are very few possibilities Mm -hmm. you're just like too full of what you already know is going to work yeah and uh it's like really the 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 joy i think the more experienced you get the, the more the joy becomes about not doing all the things you could do here mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it, it becomes so easy to be able to pull off a perfectly entertaining show without ever really having to improvise yeah you don't really have to surprise yourself or make any discoveries or 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 um, follow the line that you're committing to and see where it takes you. You know, you never have a sense. Like, I've been reading a, a lot of books on survivalism recently. I saw, yeah. Um, and so, like, a metaphor I've been using in classes that I like a lot is like, your improvising a scene is a lot like. Um, going like deep into the woods mm-hmm. um at the very top of the scene the thing that you're kind of like emotionally committing to it, it sort of gives you like a sense of north like so like even if you start a scene and, and your initiation is just like oh and that's all you give yourself yeah that sound to oh is like that that's kind of like the compass you've just given you you know that that oh that's north mm-hmm and so now your job is to follow that north into the woods and see where it takes you. And That's interesting. Eventually, you might find that there's like a landmark you find when you get to the woods, and yeah. you don't really need to consult the compass anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything is in reference to that landmark. So like you start a scene with like, oh, but eventually you build up to to you find a game that you're playing. Mm-hmm. And then once you find that game, that's like a big landmark in the woods. You're never really lost again you can always consult the landmark to know where you are so yeah. you don't need to worry about the compass yeah but other times you, you got to follow the compass and that's fine yeah um but yeah, like that, just just like going out in the woods it's like oh the thrill is in getting lost with friends and seeing cool interesting stuff along the way mm-hmm. and having a great time yeah um early on in classes what you'll see a lot of is people will um pull out their compass and then never step into the woods. They just point to where North is and then they get back in the car yeah. and, and don't risk ever getting lost. Yeah. Some people dive headfirst into the woods without ever consulting their compass or taking stock of like the landmarks they passed. Yeah. So they're lost, but it's not a good time. It, mm-hmm. it has that like terrifying thing. 
when you get really good, it's almost like you don't even need to risk getting lost anymore. You just know the path. So you take the path that you already know. Yeah. And it works and you get the reward of an audience laughing at you and it gets, you get the reward of knowing you did a good job and you feel okay drinking your beer after the show. But it doesn't have that beginner's mind thrill yeah, of, the, yeah, sure. I, I really felt like I could have been lost at any time. I was lost a few times, but it was what a fun, what a fun adventure that was. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like the, it's like the Twilight Zone episode where the guy dies and he thinks he's in heaven. Um, uh, cause he's like playing slots and stuff and he's always winning. Yeah. It's like, well, where's the thrill in that? Yeah. It's like, um, I think in Ed's class, he said, uh, like, you know, everybody here has like the, the skills at hand to like pull off a show. That's like a solid B, like a solid B show. And like, you like walk away from it and you're like, yeah, that was good. Um, but then you kind of get to a point where like good shows don't even feel good great you know good shows are like yeah i know like i can do that and like you have your bag of tricks um but <laughs> the the older i get uh or like the the longer i do this i definitely the fear of making a big choice and falling flat on my face has waned a mm. lot for me i would rather risk doing that and finding something that's so fun to play with uh than than like playing it safe. Yes. Um, and like, I don't know. I think I'm at like a point in my life just in general where that's my, my general mood of you have, um, here's another woods, uh, uh, analogy. Let's keep them coming. Um, but you know, you, you're walking through the woods and it's scary. you like, you don't know your way. And so you kind of like, eventually you make a clearing and that clearing is safe and it's comfortable. And after a while, you kind of don't want to leave. Um, but you keep on going through the woods and then you find another clearing. And, you know, um, basically, like, if you stay in that one clearing, it's like, well, what am I doing here? Right. Um, and in improv and just in life, like, does the satisfaction of the familiar and the comfortable outweigh the scariness of finding another thing? which is, you know, potentially very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's kind of like the game Minecraft, um, where I like, I like the game Minecraft for the first half an hour that I'm playing a new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you played it? No, but you'd be so proud of me. In a boss show a few weeks ago, I played a character who was playing Minecraft. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What what kind of stuff did you talk about? Uh, I was digging a lot of holes. I was getting resources. That's all there is. Digging holes, getting resources. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> I think <laughs> Megan, Megan was the only person who left. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, yeah. It, the, the beginning of a new world in Minecraft, there's danger. Uh, night comes and you, you need... Uh, the resources to defend yourself. You need the the resources to build a wall and put up torches to protect yourself from monsters. And once you're playing that world for like a long enough time, you have more resources than you need. And the game stops being fun. The beginning part of the game of like amassing those resources is what's really fun for me. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? I don't know, but uh, uh, I think I can relate this back to something. So so one of the survival books I'm reading right now is a book called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gomez. Excellent book. I mm-hmm. recommend it. And um, 
and he he was talking about how how often like really experienced mountaineers will end up making tragic errors on like beginner mountains mm. because they're like over experienced in a way and so they don't like approach this mountain with the sense of like respect that it deserves mm-hmm. and his point is like every time you go out into like the wilderness you're confronting a system that appears very stable, but is actually made up of all these different interacting parts that eventually will will reach a tipping point of complexity where at any given time, uh, uh, an unbelievable amount of energy can be released from this system. And mm-hmm. before you know it, you're in like a critical circumstance. Yeah. And, um, and so he was saying that like a lot of times, like really experienced people like won't respect that. They get a little too like overconfident in themselves and mm-hmm. they they begin screening out information from their surroundings they just kind of take it for granted and yeah. don't process it and make stupid mistakes uh-huh. and in the wilderness you can't make stupid mistakes because two stupid mistakes have like dire consequences you'll die you'll <laughs> yeah die. yeah he made the point in this book that like one of the things in like living in like cities um we really never experience the repercussions of making stupid mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like we can afford to not pay very much attention all the time, mm-hmm. but we're buffered by having so many people around us uh, and having it, our needs be so easily taken care of that we can afford to be on autopilot literally most of our lives without ever really seeing consequences yeah. to that. Um, and so people are attracted to like survivalism because they have to like test themselves against real, you can't afford to make stupid mistakes. You got to mm-hmm. pay very, very close attention. And I, I, it got me thinking about the attraction that improv has to people, the, the pull that it has to people. And I think one of the things about it is in a very, very small way, when you're improvising, it's one of the few times in your life as an urban dweller, mm-hmm. one of the few times in your life where you set aside an hour where you really have to pay close attention to things. Not that there are dire consequences. The worst case in a scenario in, in an improv show is you fuck up and it's not a funny show and you feel yeah. embarrassed, but really good improvisers pay close attention to things. Yeah. Every little thing that happens counts and is a possible gift that's going to like hand you an amazing show. You're mm-hmm. going to, you know, um, what were we talking about? Uh, the woods, the woods. Um, but I, I get what you're saying. And, um, you know, it's like, like what, what you just said though, this is like a side point. What what you said about like, yeah, there's like really no like big consequences. There's no dire consequences. You, you set aside that hour. Uh, w- being in a show has a funny way of like playing with your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the difference between like watching a show and being in a show, uh, even now, like having a bad show, like when you're in it does feel like awful. It does. Yeah. It, you feel like like that feeling of embarrassment is just like magnified. Yes. Um, you feel like everything is like on the line every time you're like doing a show. Uh, but it's not, it's really not. Um, yeah. Uh, I have a fun fact, uh, talking about the woods. Great. Um, so do you know the tool it, it's like, um, it's like a pickaxe on one side and, uh, like a, like a little pitchfork kind of on the other. Yeah. Um, and so like mountaineers will have that or like, uh, forest rangers might use that or something. So that's called the Pulaski. 
Uh, have you heard about that? No, I don't think so. So it's named after a guy. He was a uh, forest, a park ranger named Big Ed Pulaski. And his claim to fame was there was a really terrible forest fire uh, in this forest that he was a ranger of. And him and like his other rangers um, were kind of caught in it. And he guided them into this cave. Um, and he pulled out a gun and he said, if anybody tries to leave this cave, I will shoot you. Because he knew that like where the cave was, where it was facing, uh, it, I, I don't know all the specifics of like the pressure, you know, of like the, whether it was like a low pressure front hitting, a, I, I don't know. But he, he knew that like, the fire would go past them and not go into the cave. Mm. I don't know if he actually shot one of them, but basically the end of the story was the fire went past them, didn't go into the cave. He saved all of their lives. Mm. Um, and that is the Pulaski, that oh. tool. Huh? Yeah. What an honor for him. Mm-hmm. I remember what I was going to say. Okay. So going back to like the beginning stages of Minecraft where it's oh, like yeah. gathering those like resources. So like, I, I, I think um oh i also remember something that i was going to say but you go first no you go first no 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 please i insist okay um i I was going to say that uh sometimes it's just really helpful to like when you're feeling when you're feeling like you're like you're doing these b shows and you like you're kind of scared of putting yourself out there just like remembering like what it was like coming to improv in in the first place i mean different people come to it from different places i wasn't at all a theater person uh starting with level one here was the very first theater related thing that I ever did. I don't even think that I, I ever did like a school play. Wow. How'd that happen? Um, how did it happen that I, I never did any theater stuff? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think for a long time, my identity identity, uh, was like a science guy. Mm-hmm. Um, in high school, I fell in love with physics. I think what I fell in love with really like now that I've had time to think about it was it was something that I was good at it. Mm-hmm. It was something I was good at. And I, I liked the feeling of being good at it. Um, but then I like put a lot of my interest and time into physics and like other science stuff and math. I, I really, I really love math. Um, and you know, improv was always something that like you did and like, I would come to see it, but like, I would never take a part. I guess I was like scared of it. Um, and now it's, so, it's funny. It's like three, three years later, I, I've been doing this and I can't imagine not doing it. You, if you don't mind me getting personal, you do it with like physics and math because you have always been really good at it, but you got very wrapped up in it. I think in a very like safe way, there was like a warm cocoon of being in the identity of being the math and physics guy. Yeah. I think you got like a little deterred in college when you met other math and physics people and kind of realized that like it wasn't a hundred percent your thing. Yeah. You got stuck in life in a place that improvisers get stuck in their improv careers, which is I'm good at this. So I do this over and over and over mm-hmm. again. I stop walking off the beaten path. And mm-hmm. before you know it, I'm not really lost in the woods anymore, having to look for these landmarks to figure out where the hell I am. Yeah. I'm just walking the path that I know. And there's a, a, a trap in that. Yeah. And going back to what I said before about like being in that clearing the forest and does the safety of this outweigh the fear or thrill of like leaving it. Right. I'm at a point in my life for sure improv and just in life of like the, the safety doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I'm going to be doing a program in a few months for learning coding. It's a coding boot camp, And, uh, it's very scary to me because it's like such a big change. 
but I'm, I'm all for it. That feels, I mean, that's certainly true for you, but I think it's also like a little bit of a generational thing. Like it feels like that's part of like a bigger picture of like, what does that thing of like, somehow it feels like we have been very blessed by being in a very like safe place. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly we're kind of confronted with like the horror of the situation. Mm -hmm. We're not as safe as we felt and we have to like do something. Yeah. To get out. Yeah. Not to make a dark. No, no, no. Turn on this. I, you know, I, I, I listened to an interview with uh, Dana Carvey where he was talking about something Lorne Michaels had said to him once. He was talking about the difference between like his generation of comedians and like younger comedians. Mm -hmm. I can't do a Lorne Michaels impression, but apparently Lorne Michaels said to Dana Carvey, um, our, our, we were, uh, uh, we were uh, born uncivilized and we became civilized. Mm -hmm. They were born civilized. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was like a really interesting thing. This like Mm -hmm. older generation of performers and comedians who like, there weren't schools for them to go to, to learn it. Yeah, they weren't able to go off of like their savings to to invest in learning comedy. Like they had to like, they were like working class people first mm-hmm. who like fought their way into like having like careers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you learn lessons along the way, and you learn the kind of strength that you have in you, and you learn how to endorse it, and you learn how to kind of be ambitious and know what you want and go for it, and you learn how to make plans. And you know, you, you're a little bit more of like you've been dropped in the woods, and you got to like make shelter for yourself. Mm-hmm, totally. Whereas like we're part of a generation, I'm grossly overgeneralizing this, <laughs> but we're part of a generation where we were a lot more privileged in a lot of ways. We had a lot of shit handed to us. Didn't have to fight for stuff. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to articulate what we wanted. Kind of always had easy access to what we needed. Yeah. And now later in life, we're kind of realizing of like, oh, I got to, I'm too comfortable here. Yeah. I, you know, people, one of the questions that I've always hated being asked is like, what do you want to do? And I don't know. Like I I've, I've never really known. I, I always just kind of like, I have like a bit, a bit of an addictive personality and I kind of, my, my life is like a patchwork of what I'm doing right now. That is very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, be it crosswords or the Rubik's cube for a, for a spell or things like that. I mean, like it's not like a major thing, but it's just like indicative of, of that. Um, yeah, I, that's something I've always admired about you incidentally, because I develop little obsessions too, but I don't like you develop obsessions and then you get really good at something. I just develop obsessions. Okay. You developed an obsession with the Rubik's cube and then you figured out how to solve it in like two minutes, a uh, minute and 15 seconds or whatever. <laughs> I would like never get around to that. I would just be able, I would develop an obsession with the Rubik's cube and be able to go in depth about its history, but I'd never be yeah. able to like solve one. Well, I think that for me, a big part, I think that for me, a big part of uh, like the Rubik's cube or something that like you work at until you get better. Um, a lot of that is like, is like math for me um, where there's an answer or there's like a way of doing it or like any sort of, Incidentally, I think this is what drew me to physics, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, any sort of thing where you problem solving, I, I just find problem solving really scratches an itch that I have that hasn't gone away. Um, where you start off with certain variables, certain givens, and it's like, how do I build a ladder out of these givens to get to that ledge where the answer is? Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I'm 
if I really get going on something, um, I think I have a way of, of not stopping until I get it. Like I feel I, like I don't want whatever it is that I haven't solved yet to defeat me. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel about it. And I think that you can probably make the case that that's sort of improv. Maybe improv can be frustrating for me in that respect because there, there is no beating it. There's no yes. solving it. Yes. Um, and so kind of coming to terms with like, oh, I've, I've arrived. Like, no, you haven't. Yeah. Um, but just like that carrot on a stick, like you just keep on going and you can see the progress that you've made. And like, that's satisfying enough. Improv is very, is very like the journey, not the destination, man. You know? Yeah. The path is the goal. Yeah, exactly. That seems like a pretty good place to end. We're out of time. So we're going to edit there. Sounds good. Al, closing thoughts on the state of improvisation. Oh my God. It, it's, it's dead. It is dead. <laughs> <laughs> video that's the future my friends video <laughs> yeah alex kornfeld lewis kornfeld thank you for talking sir thank you for talking to me i'll see you at thanksgiving i'll see you i'll see you later tonight yeah that's, that's true <laughs> uh and thank you all for listening you guys can see alex every week at megawatt with avalanche also drop in and say hi to him he house manages all the dang time at mm-hmm. the magnet theater Thank you for listening, everyone. A couple of other big thank yous, of course, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and to all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do us a favor. Go on iTunes. Give us a nice rating, perhaps a little few words of kindness. uh, Boost our profile. It's all about the likes, kids. The only thing that matters in life is that people give you digitized likes. Attention is currency. Friendship means nothing. Don't leave your apartment, uh, 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 etc. I lost my train of thought on yeah, that one. I think that's I think that's what I <laughs> what I meant to say in this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Lou. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.